Hey there, I'm Matthew Foley and this is ISO Insights, where God's truth grows in the midst of current culture, renewing the mind and spirit. Welcome back to ISO Insights and I'm your host, Matthew Foley. Around here they call me Theo, but uh, we have as our guest today, Dr. Michael Knight. So Dr. Michael Knight, he is pastor, just so you know, of Covenant Community Church in Madisonville, Kentucky. He also has taught on staff here at ISO. A few years back, actually, it was before my time. This is actually my first time of meeting him. Uh, but he taught two courses, Biblical Apologetics and the Canonization of Scripture. So if you want to check those out, you can go on isow.org. You currently are over multiple different <laughs> different projects wearing so many hats, it was actually hard to write an intro into the video, but I know that uh, along with pastoring and uh, multiple books you've written, you uh, did your first PhD uh, on, what was it, strate strategic uh, leadership? Doctorate in the School of Business at mm -hmm. Regent University in leadership, yeah. Wow. And, and then now you're working on a second PhD. Is this in sociology? I am weeks away from a final PhD at the University of Birmingham in mm -hmm. England on the sociology of religion, specifically wow. Pentecostal charismatic adolescence. Mm -hmm. Wow. So extremely relevant to what ISO's interests are. And uh, spirit-filled young people, if you're wanting to know anything about what's happening in the church, uh, how young people are being affected, this is your guy. <laughs> he, he's literally looking into that and has done research for years at this point into the subject. Uh, he's also written uh, two books, and we'll talk about that, well, more than two, but the two books I'm talking about right now are Lethal Faith, Volume 1 and 2. I'll show you those in our next episode with him. But we have something I wanted to mention real quick before we jumped in is the Never Before Project, and we can talk about that in a little bit more detail. Uh, but what's, what's that? Could you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, Matthew, the Never Before Project is a ministry dedicated to the reconstruction of children of the faith that have deconstructed mm -hmm. their faith. We uh, are about the retention of adolescent faith, 12 to 28 years of age, and then also about attrition. And so there mm -hmm. are four main brands. We have a global grid where we are connecting relationally people who work with adolescents all over the world, mm -hmm. from Africa to Alabama. And we uh, have a second brand, and that brand is the... Uh, um, it's a scientific uh, social research center for passionate evangelical adolescents, which we, mm -hmm. where we do sociological research on passionate evangelical adolescents to find out where they're at, what they're believing, what their intentions are. And then we have a resource company, and then we mm -hmm. have an apologetic uh, ministry to families. Wow. So uh, the, the major goal is to, I assume, to influence a young generation to secure the church's ability to disciple young people and to keep them in the church. Uh, so is, is the main focus to keep Christians, children that are already in the church, in other words, children that are being born to the church, mm -hmm. or is it to pull in unbelievers? Or are you just, I assume you're happy with both, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy at, with both because I'm a soul winner and I, I think mm -hmm. that's very important. However, I do believe that there is a new form of apologetics for specifically evangelical conservative adolescents. Mm -hmm. and, and all the research, all the journal articles, all the academic literature, conservative evangelical adolescents do better mm -hmm. in the retention of their faith, in the produ productivity of their civil duties mm -hmm. than any other um, religious adolescent. Wow. Uh, before we dive in, because we want to get into deeper details about all the different 
projects that you've been looking into in the last few years, uh, what, what your interests are, what the research, the field of research you have is. Uh, and even I scrolled through, well, I scrolled through, that's, that's what you do now on your phone, but it was with an actual physical book, so I guess I was thumbing through it. <laughs> but uh, I was looking through uh, your book's Legal Faith, and I had volume one to look through, and I actually, I, I did my degree in biblical studies and theology, uh -huh. and uh, we'll, we'll get, I just want to touch on this because it's on my mind now, because what I first want to ask you when we uh, get into the, the meat of the interview is about your personal journey, because oh, uh, yeah. I saw a little bit of your testimony, and I'm very interested. Uh -huh. uh, but it's, it's wild to see where academics has gone, even in Christian universities. Uh -huh. I've actually heard it said, uh, and this was on just a YouTube comment section, so it wasn't any scholar or anything, so but much. somebody said that some of the worst universities right now in the United States, as far as liberalism goes, are Christian universities that they're, they're being targeted and affected by certain groups so heavily and that uh, they, they've been infiltrated. So, and I'm talking about across the board in mm -hmm. all different areas of the United States. Uh, so you, you talk about not just Presbyterian universities like Princeton that used to be Presbyterian's yes. Ivy League now. Mm -hmm. but, started uh, from the Great Awakening. But you have like uh, Baylor University, Baptist universities mm -hmm. that groups have uh, uh, targeted and gone in. And it isn't always, I know, the structure of the university, I don't think. I think it's actually how much the demographic has changed in the United States because universities mm -hmm. will always try to appeal to the young people that are coming in because you, you have to have students. Mm -hmm. But the culture in the U.S. has changed so dramatically within 10 to 20 years, even the last five years, that people have, sexual ethic is just out of the door. Mm -hmm. People don't know how to identify what gender they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, things that are just biologically set. So I want to I wanna ask uh, about what's going on, about a, an idea of liberalism where people have lost any idea of truth mm -hmm. and of objectivity. What's going on in the culture? Well, I would first um, fall on uh, the writings of James K.A. Smith, um, which I don't agree with everything he says, but he's a good philosopher. And he makes a good point about education um, that you have to, in Christianity, love before you can know. Mm -hmm. And this idea of discipleship in the United States that you have to know, in other words, you know hermitology, you know pneumatology, you know all of these studies of theology, before you actually fall in love with Jesus, mm -hmm. there's an issue. The other issue is, for me, that... Uh, we are living in an apostate world. Mm -hmm. We're living in a world where just because you have the tag Christian doesn't mean you're Christian. First Thessalonians is clear in that there will be an apostasy. And that word apostasy in the Greek actually implies not my mother or your father that are mm -hmm. devout Christians. Mm -hmm. It actually implies people who are Christian in name only, Matthew, and also have some kind of understanding of the system of teaching in Christianity, but have never had an experience with God. Mm, really? So when we wow. talk about a great falling away, and especially after COVID-19, mm -hmm. we're not talking about the saints. We're talking about people who were nominal in their Christian faith. Mm -hmm. This nominalism has been in places of academic power and have rooted throughout the years. Um, education normally makes you more liberal. I get that. Mm -hmm. It's been a struggle in my own life. But at the same time, if, you, uh, if there is a God, and the Bible is the Word of God, and 
the Jesus is the only way to God, then yeah. we should be able to intellectually, academically defend our faith mm-hmm. about our evangelical positions. Wow. So now talking about how you've arrived at where you are today, I'm, I saw on your uh, on, on the website for your church, on the about page, that it's it says your background was actually in a Catholic family. Yes. And that you came in the spirit-filled church. Mm-hmm. Well, could you describe what that was like to me? Because yeah. I've actually, um, in my time in college, I've learned a lot about Catholicism. Yes. Uh, but I, I went to a Pentecostal college. <laughs> uh-huh. But th- I'm very interested to hear about that. Well, it's rather simple. Uh, we didn't go to church when I was a child. My mother and father was raised in church. And uh, until my freshman year of high school, we never attended church. My mother and father was blessed financially, but uh, we're getting ready to have a divorce. Mm -hmm. And uh, she stumbled into a little Pentecostal church and gave her life to Jesus. And it changed my home forever. I still remember at 55 how it was completely different instantly. And... um, my grandmother, who was a charismatic Catholic who was slain in the Holy Spirit with rosary beads in her hands, actually uh, became a very devout Christian, left the Catholic Church. And I'm, I have lots of friends that are Catholic that love God just as much as any Pentecostal people. Um, but there are 55 million charismatic Catholics with mm-hmm. their own cardinal now, you know? Really? Yes, there's a great revival going on amongst the Catholic believers. I have friends in Kansas City that are part of that. Mm-hmm. And um, so my grandma and grandpa began to go to church, and um, they helped the Happy Goodmans start their first church in Madisonville, Kentucky, and the old Capitol Theater. They were members. Uh, And then as the ministry of Howard Investo exploded throughout the world, they continued to go there. Well, that church closed, Mm -hmm. and um, the Goodmans were very good friends of mine. I love them dearly. Um, and my grandma and papa st- uh, stumbled into a church of God mm-hmm. where they had a new pastor who was 32 years old, and I thought he was ancient <laughs> when I was a kid. But we fell in love with that place, and God got a hold of my heart, and I learned about Lee University, and the mm-hmm. rest is history. Wow. At ISO, we always strive to provide discounts and incentives for our students. Now, we're thrilled to announce our best value ever, the ISO All Access Pass. For just $99 per month, any student can access our entire learning platform. An ever-expanding library of fascinating, groundbreaking teaching at your fingertips for the average price of just one ISO course. There has never been such a prime opportunity to pursue your biblical education. Students in many traditional schools pay $100 to learn every day for every single course. With the All Access Pass, that amount gives you access to our entire course catalog. At ISO, you can learn from world-class teachers on a wide variety of subjects, all at your own pace. With the subscription-based model of the All Access Pass, there are no obligations to put yourself in debt for decades. If you're hungry to learn about the Word, there's never been a better value. That's countless hours of teaching and materials with no limit on how much you can learn. Now, more than ever, ISO is excited to connect the Word with the world. Go to isow.org to get started with the All Access Pass today. You had an encounter with the Lord, uh, and so for you, it, w- it wasn't as though, I know where a lot of people, I've brought people on the show before, and they've talked about growing up in church, they, they, in Baptist circles and in Pentecostal circles, when kids grow up in church, they say there's a time in which your faith becomes your own, which usually means you as an individual, though you grew up 
in a church where people believed in a personal relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. You came into experiencing it in a very real way, in a mm -hmm. consistent way at some point. Sometimes it happens when they're in the ages of 8 to 13 mm -hmm. or in the teenage years. But you, you actually, by the time you became a teenager, entered in to the Spirit-filled church. Mm -hmm. So that was, boom, relationship with God, knowing the living God mm -hmm. then. So after that happened, you said you went to Lee University, a great college. Mm -hmm. um, did you, what were your studies then? Were you going to pastoral ministry? My study ministry? was uh, Christian education and uh, psychology in those days. Mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Charles Beach uh, was walking along the uh, pathway at Lee when you could drive down the campus. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Dr. Lamar Vest was the president. Oh, wow. Dr. Kahn became the president six mm -hmm. months later. And uh, he yelled, hey, boy, come here. Mm -hmm. And so I went over because Dr. Beach asked me to go over there, and uh, he took me underneath his wings. Robert Shepard, a mm -hmm. campus pastor, took me through a master life, a Baptist curriculum for discipleship, and it changed my whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's really important for people when we talk about the deconstruction or the reconstruction or the retention, more appropriately here, of Christian faith amongst this generation, Generation Z, that we realize there's no silver bullets. There's not just mm -hmm. one thing, but it's five things predominantly sociologically working together at the same time. Like, number one, kids that have devote or devout, excuse me, passionate evangelical parents mm -hmm. who love God and go to church and participate in the life of the church. They build kids that way. And if they are not that way, they build children that attri have attrition in their faith. Mm -hmm. We know that when you are connected as a young person in a church and you've got other people within your social mm -hmm. network leveraging their social capital to help you in, um, embed your mother and father's religious values, that that seals faith. Mm -hmm. We know that when you get an adolescent involved with Bible reading or some kind of daily devotion, it connects them to the intimacy of a deity. And we mm -hmm. know that kids that retain their faith have less doubts than those kids that don't retain their faith. And then finally, we know that kids that have religious experiences seal their faith. So if you have these five things, you retain your faith. If you don't have these five things, you lose your faith. And this is well documented at the University of Notre Dame. But that was the story of my life. Lots of things came together. Lee University, Dr. Charles Beach, Brother Shepard, mm -hmm. James Crump, and formed faith in me as an adolescent. Wow. And how did you uh, feel the calling to pastoral ministry in, then in Kentucky and established your church there? All right, I ran from it, number one. Whoa, okay. <laughs> and uh, I had a heart for youth ministry. I was going to lead to be an adolescent psychiatrist or to go into business, mm -hmm. um, school business. And uh, God got a hold of me on the second floor of Hughes Hall in room 217. Mm -hmm. And uh, I gave my life to Christ. And uh, the rest is, I just became passionate. I just fell in love with Jesus mm -hmm. at a very young age. And went right out of lead to a mega church of 4,000 people in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Started a youth group with 50 kids who were juvenile delinquents. Mm -hmm. Most of then went to five, 600 in the 80s. Mm. You mean literally? Yes. Literally. Wow. Yes. And, um, uh, you know, served in the Department of Labor as an uh, adolescent uh, alcohol and drug abuse counselor. Mm -hmm. Went to another mega church. Mm -hmm. Youth group went from 60, 70 kids to 700 in Kansas City, Assemblies mm -hmm. of God. And uh, throughout my life, I just began to realize that kids that experience God keep God. Wow. 
Woo. <laughs> well, so you went and <laughs> I'm trying to grab hold of this here. You had a passion for young people mm -hmm. from the start. Oh, absolutely. So as some of the largest youth groups in America. Wow. So I'm going to ask you this. I'm just curious. Yeah. I, when I grew up around, okay, let's say 15, 16, 17, 18, a lot of spirit-filled youth ministries mm -hmm. that, I, and I'm not talking about add-ons to the church ministry. Mm -hmm. I mean, independent youth ministries started to become a prominent thing. Mm -hmm. Ministries that were aimed specifically at young people. A lot of ministers started hearing from the Lord. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm about to focus on young people to a great deal. Mm -hmm. Now, has it always been a part of the culture of the church to have a strong interest in young people, trying to figure young people out? Or uh, has that just been taken for granted? I mean, has there been a change in the church's focus in young people? You know, that's an interesting, very complex question, mm -hmm. actually. When you look at the development, this is going to shock you, of evangelical literature in the late 1700s mm -hmm. and early 1800s, long before the United Sunday School Association, the union, Sunday school union, mm -hmm. they started building a textual community with adolescents. Before there were any youth ministries in any denomination, uh, they played around with certain ideas, but a guy named Dr. Francis E. Clark in the mm -hmm. mid-1800s, late uh, 1800s, started what was called the Christian Endeavor Association. It, it actually, mm -hmm. Matthew, added 100,000 kids a month to a global movement. And most people don't Whoa. even know this story. <laughs> but he was fueled because he used the printed page. You got mm -hmm. to realize this is long before an iPhone. Yeah. And so a printed page became the avenue in which Christians built a textual community amongst children and mm -hmm. adolescents. Mm -hmm. You see this in the writings of Dr. Francis E. Clark. Mm -hmm. You see this in the Baptists, the Methodists, the Epworth Leeds. You see this at Azusa Street in the Azusa Street papers where there was a children's paper. Mm -hmm. You see where they used and copied the success, and it was tremendously successful, adolescent literature, to build a textual community of children and adolescents that love God. Wow. Woo. <laughs> so... Uh, the, the, that was when it began, this kind of focus historically on, on young people, with on young, young people ministries. Yes, absolutely. It started through evangelical literature. Really? Yes. Wow. Now, you can go all the way back to the First Great Awakening, and you've got Jonathan Edwards' grandfather. Uh, mm -hmm. I think his name is Stoddard. He was a librarian at Harvard. And uh, he helped write an act called the Halfway Covenant Act. Mm -hmm. And the Halfway Covenant Act said that the children of the pilgrims, the children of the ch grandchildren of the pilgrims, you don't have to serve God with the fervency we mm -hmm. serve him and get church membership. Mm -hmm. We'll let you in with half the dedication. And it was a complete Matthew disaster. Mm -hmm. When you ask this generation for less, you get nothing. Wow. When you ask them for A's, you'll get a B or an A. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So, so is that something that's that happened then? It's happening now. So that's just human nature. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. So in that case, I, I know that <laughs> we recently uh, got done, haven't launched it yet on ISO. So if you're looking for it and it's not there at the time we filmed this, it hasn't been launched yet. But recently did a, a course called Theology of Grace, where it was mm. just uh, teaching about, I was teaching about where grace has come, the ideas of grace. Mm -hmm. Sacraments were a very big part of it as far as how Christians think of sacraments, because mm -hmm. I wanted to cover Orthodox theology, Catholic theology, and Protestant theology, Evangelical theology. Mm -hmm. What's interesting about that is people, for, for so many years in church history, 
a big part of uh, Christian theology was explaining how young people retained and received faith. And for the for St. Augustine, he said baptism <laughs> mm-hmm. is the key to it. Which well, it's is, a religious yeah, experience. Yeah. He, and he said that, but, but for them, they said, as soon as the child is born, like as soon as you can, baptize the child. Because they thought the baptism itself. Infant baptism. Infant yeah. baptism. And that's what they'll do in the Orthodox and Catholic Church today, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. baptize infants. But uh, Ulrich Zwing- Zwingli in the Reformation mm-hmm. started to question a lot of the, the, that that's the way that sacraments worked. And he said, mm-hmm. well, I think it's more central to the faith that goes mm-hmm. into the sacrament than the sacrament itself. So after that happened, he did, Ulrich Zwing- Zwingli didn't do it, but the Anabaptists started to say, you know what, I don't think it's good for young children to be baptized when they don't even know that, that, that they're saying yes to faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. We have to, they started coming up with this idea that developed in the age of the accountability. So the children at some point have to decide when their faith is their own, when they're going to trust in Christ. So you're saying that the mistake in the church is people wanting, it sounds weird, but people are wanting to create an easy way for their kids. That's been part of it, um, but it's a little bit more complicated for me than that, mm-hmm. or complex, is number one, you've got to remember the five things we just talked about. Mm. But then you've got to understand that James Fowler was right, along with Piaget and other people, that there are, fo- there are fa- phases to, to, to faith. There are mm-hmm. faith stages. Yeah. The problem is the faith stages of James Fowler from Harvard in 1981 are not always uh, uh, applicable today mm-hmm. because we don't lose kids in college. That's mm-hmm. a myth. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, if you are an evangelical and you're from a devout even, and when I say evangelical, I mean you believe the Bible is the word of mm-hmm. God, you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, you believe that he's born of a virgin, mm-hmm. those kind of basic biblical elemental truths. When you are like that and you send your kids who have that belief system and are participating mm-hmm. in, in the religion, you send them to a secular university, they actually strengthen their faith. Wow. If you send someone who is mainline or you send a child that is raised in a mainline church or Islam mm-hmm. or any other religion, education decreases their faith. So understanding the faith stages mm-hmm. that when you're young, you the importance of parents modeling the religion along with a social network, which is a local church, mm-hmm. and their family and friends that have their values, vision, and mission is the most crucial thing. And then when you move into middle school, because that's where we're losing kids today. Mm. We're not losing kids in college. That's a myth. We're losing them in middle school. Mm -hmm. And we're losing them in middle school in their mind way before we lose them with their feet. They may come and eat pizza and they may chase girls at the youth group. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they're rejecting the Bible because they believe it's an anti-scientific book. They're rejecting... um, Uh, Jesus Christ because they believe evolution has disproven Mm -hmm. the Bible. Mm -hmm. They believe that archaeology is made a full of the Bible. Mm -hmm. None of those things are true. So at 14 and 15, the articulation of faith becomes important along with a good human capital, a social network inside of a church. That moves into 16, 17, 18-year-olds where experience becomes important amongst 13-year-olds to Mm 18-year-olds. But then they have to begin to own their own faith around 17 and 18. And owning their own faith means they take responsibility Mm -hmm. for the leadership of the faith. Like my daughter Lily right now Mm -hmm. at Lee University. I had that conversation with her as a a, a senior. Lily, you're getting ready to the 
come to the point where you have, must own your own faith. Mm-hmm. You must make that decision. And the whole problem, the real problem, isn't the educational institutions. Mm-hmm. The real problem is we have taken education, the Christian education of our family, out of the home mm. and relied on the church to do it. And God never intended for that to happen. Oh, wow. So uh, what, what are some ways that you think that that can be remedied? For Christian families, what would you say? I mean, I know you're a pastor, so you have to yeah. say it's your own congregation, I'm sure. Yeah. But what would you say to Christian parents, fathers and mothers, this is how you're going to fix this? Well, you know what? If you come home with a C in our home, my wife Jenny, you better be pleading the blood of Jesus because there's going to be weeping and gnashing mm-hmm. of teeth. Oh, really? <laughs> so education and academics mm-hmm. are extremely high in our house. Um, however, when we have Christian families that they have as their prominent goal— Mm-hmm. prominent goal is to raise good Christian kids that stay out of jail. We're, we fail. Mm. So our goal is not to raise kids that stay out of jail. Our goal is not to raise children with a 4.0, and that's extremely important. Our goal is to raise kids in the faith, and we need Christian parents in this country, if they want to stop the deconstruction of faith, number one, to start having intentional conversations about Christianity, about abortion, about transgenderism, about the Bible, about archaeology, while you're going to a soccer game. Mm-hmm. And we need to move education back to the role of the parents. And they need to be an, as intentional about education with their children mm-hmm. as we are about calculus. 